Well, good morning. Um, some of you may be pleased to know this is the last of this mini-series, uh, looking at the issues surrounding living in love and faith. Um, in the first week, we looked at teaching and rebellion, and we saw how in the book of Titus, Paul wrote to Titus in Crete, the importance of sound doctrine. And then we looked at Jesus and marriage in Genesis and found that Jesus affirmed and assumed the creation um, uh, idea of marriage in Matthew 19. Then we looked at relationships and community in 1 Corinthians 7 and we saw how marriage and singleness are equally valued in the Bible. And then uh, Lisa last week talked about love and challenge by looking at those two stories where Jesus loved people but told them to go and change their ways. So I believe in a revised understanding of the Bible in respect of same-sex attracted Christians. This radical new reading is that marriage is ordained by God as being between one man and one woman for life. And that is the intended place for sexual activity. All sexual activity outside of this is not God's will. All people are valued and loved. All people fall short of the glory of God and are sinners. For some, their sins include sexual ones. All of us face temptations, and almost all face sexual temptation. That, in of itself, is not sinful, but dwelling there should be avoided. Jesus was very clear on this. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. That is in Matthew 5, 27 to 29. Jesus here takes the Jewish law on sex and strengthens it. He saw it as that important. He warned us with hyperbole about taking care at the top of the slippery slope that might lead to sin. Same-sex attracted Christians, like all believers, are faced with a choice to sin sexually or not. For some, avoiding sin will mean celibate close friendships. For others, it will mean a single life, ideally supported by a loving community, as we saw before. And for some few, it will mean marriage to an other sexed partner, within which sexual activity may or may not take place. Any choices other than these are not what God intends for them. Church must do all we can to walk well with those facing these choices. And it's got to be admitted that we have not done this well in the past. And that is why this is a radical revision to the historic interpretation of the Bible, because it is not how the church and society has viewed same-sex attraction in the past. Same-sex activity for men was illegal from 1533 until 1967. Its promotion was banned under Section 28 of the Local Government Act 1989. Same-sex attraction itself was treated as a mental illness 
as late as 1973 in the USA, and 1990 was when it was removed from the list for the World Health Organization, resulting until then in medication and even electric shock treatment. And it has been identified in some churches as the work of demons and the practice of praying the gay away and coercive corrective practices have sometimes been practiced. None of this is justified by applying biblical texts as we read them today. Repentance and apologies are required as suggested by the House of Bishops. I also believe that further suggested revision in some of the church goes too far and are not justified by scripture. The presented case for change to the doctrine of marriage is not compelling. So I'm afraid this is a slightly longer one again. This is to do honor to those arguments and the reasons why I don't find them compelling. Now some of the arguments are quite technical and we don't have time to go into them in detail here. Um, in Newslink, you'll find a couple of links to um, uh, YouTube videos, one from Kevin DeYoung, who shows the orthodox view, and one from Matthew Vines, who puts forward a more revisionist view. Now, each of those videos is an hour long. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got some Sunday lunch to have, so um, I, if I could refer you to them, there's loads of resources on the website about these technicalities. So I'll go over them fairly briefly. But briefly, what is the case for change? Now here are some of the key arguments which are put forward. The first one is that the church has changed on other things, so it's time to change on this. Slavery, divorce, and ordination of women are usually cited here. Each of these had a biblical case made for change from Scripture not from Scripture's silence. This is an argument that change is possible, not that this change should be made. So this argument is a mistaken use of the word change. The second one is that the church is behind the times. We need to be culturally relevant, or orthodoxy puts people off the gospel. The church is, however, called to be countercultural. In the world and not of it, as we'll see when we delve into the John 17 reading we had earlier, just a little bit more. The biblical narrative tells us that over many years people come towards or walk away from God's good news. But current cultural relevance is no measure of God's truth. Pete Gregg puts it this way, the Bible isn't some ancient echo chamber for a Western millennial mindset. It doesn't always comply conveniently with my contemporary cultural preferences. It rarely pampers to the vagaries of my current emotional state, thank God. I want to be provoked. I want to be part of something bigger and older than me. So this argument is a mistaken use of the word relevant. It's not fair. This says that God would not discriminate, therefore all should have access to marriage. Again, this does not match the biblical narrative. Let's start from the basics, that God is good, and all things of and from him 
must be good. Therefore, if Scripture reveals his will for same-sex attracted Christians, and that what is revealed is that marriage and sex is only for one man and one woman, within marriage, then that must be good. The question, therefore, is not, is that good? Or, how could that possibly be good? Inferring that God must have got it wrong. Rather, in what way is that good? God's economy is not about what we deserve. It's not about rights, but about how we meet his requirements for living. In John 14, we hear Jesus say, If you love me, you will follow my commands. Grace is about receiving what we don't deserve. No one has rights before God. All people are afforded equal dignity and are loved equally by God and all are called to repentance and obedience. Not making sexual sin greater than other sins is what would be fair. This argument is a mistaken use of the word fair. The next one is God is a God of love, or God is love. This argument suggests that since God loves us, it is inconceivable that he would not want the best for us. And in this theology, that means giving everyone their desire. So let me take you on an Ash Wednesday diversion. If you were here on Wednesday evening, I apologize for hearing it again. But I shared this thought. What religion would 2023 start? God is a creator who made everything and left us to get on with it. He won't bother us until the end, if even then. So God who created free will as the height of his creation. A God who made humans for flourishing according to our own desires and self-direction. It's a God who made humanity with no clear sexual difference, but instead a spectrum of gender from which we determine where we sit. A God who loves all people, meaning that he affirms everyone, unless they teach old religion, in which case they are to be ostracized and criticized as unloving. A God who values brokenness so much that he wants us to keep it forever. There is no judgment, because all roads and understandings of God lead to heaven, because God wants eternal flourishing for us all. A God who does not heal, because science does that. And anyway, he might not, and that leads to disappointment. A God who reveals himself in what we think, and only in the bits of the Bible that agree with that. A God who looks different to everyone because there is not truth, only my truth. The cross happened, but does not need to be explained other than an example of being loving and doing things for other people. Neither the cross nor the resurrection need achieve anything, because God will save everyone for himself anyway, because we are worth it. And I rather cheekily called this L'Orealism because we are worth it. And this L'Orealism, which is a slight caricature, but all of those statements are based on things that I've heard people say, does not have Lent 
because it doesn't require repentance. L'Orealism is of the world. This alternative doctrine, where anyone to espouse it in such a systematic way, makes God a universalist. Yet we know that not all will be saved. Matthew 25 and Revelation 19 tell us that. It also takes God out of the equation of deciding what is good for us. But as we have already seen, the creator God is goodness itself. To say God is love means, in this logic, he wills what we want. And further, for one to say otherwise is unloving. But that just doesn't make sense of the biblical narrative. God self-identifies as loving and slow to anger and compassionate, but he also self-identifies as punishing sin. And we find that in Exodus 34, 5 to 6. So this argument is a mistaken use of the word love. And the next one is that scripture is plain wrong. And this is the conclusion of many liberal biblical scholars that scripture is very clear in its prohibitions, definitions of marriage and of its sexual ethics. And it leaves no room for affirmation of same-sex marriage or sex. Therefore, scripture must be wrong. Let's be clear, if all scriptures God breathes, as we find in 2 Timothy 3, then this claim means one of two things. Firstly, I do not believe that scripture is the authoritative revelation of Jesus our Saviour, in which case we cannot use the term evangelical or good news Christian. Or secondly, God is wrong on this. In either case, this argument is less than compelling. The next one is a bit more technical, which is that Scripture doesn't say what it seems to say. And this is where I divert you to these two videos. It requires many layered exegesis. Firstly, the suggestion would be that marriage is not limited to one man and one woman. Secondly, that same sex sexual activity that is spoken of negatively, and it clearly is, is in the. Um, in the Old and New Testaments, is about abusive relationships and or that the Old Testament law no longer applies. It does, but only in part. And the third claim would be that the Bible says nothing about faithful, monogamous, lifelong same-sex relationship, which it doesn't. But it is from this silence that God's affirmation is assumed. And this is ultimately not compelling. It's a mistaken use of a series of words and concepts. The next one is that scripture moves towards inclusion from exclusion. Citing the revelation to Peter in Acts 10 and uh, Acts 15 about the Council of Jerusalem, the argument is that Gentiles were included in the kingdom. And the argument is made that God therefore is progressively including more people, including those in sexually active same-sex relationships. Peter, you may know from that reading, sees a vision in a dream by which all food are made clean. And he is compelled to visit a Gentile called Cornelius. And Peter, through this, 
is thereby convinced that the mission of God is for all people. But this says more about Peter's inherited isolationism than about God's mission, which was always to all people, Gentiles included. Genesis 12 contains a promise to Abraham to be a father to all nations. Isaiah 42, Israel is portrayed as to be a light to all nations. The Pentecostal prophecy from Joel is that spirit will be poured on all people. And in Revelation 7, the multitude before the throne are from, you guessed it, every nation. The mission of God was always inclusive in the invitation to Jews and to Gentiles. But it was exclusively to those who would believe and obey and repent. So this is a mistaken use of the word inclusive. And the final one is um, good fruit, not bad fruit, which is an argument that comes from Matthew 7, 17 to 18. And it's based on experience. You judge a tree by its fruit, said Jesus. And uh, to coin a phrase, if it's bad fruit, one can tell it is bad. That's the claim. Therefore, loving relationships are good and orthodox teaching is bad. But who decides here what is good and bad? The yardstick in the argument for change is, I think this is good, therefore it must be good. I believe that God will affirm, and therefore if the church affirms sexually active, same-sex relationship, that must be good fruit. To not affirm and bless causes distress and that is self-evidently bad fruit. It has a certain logic to it. But the true measure of good is God's will. And the best indicator of God's will we have is Scripture and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Remember that question before. If God is good, why is this good? Living out same-sex attraction is undoubtedly hard, and admittedly has not been my cross to bear. Living so as to bring one closer to Christ is always going to be good fruit. If sexual activity and even same-sex marriage are not God's intention, it cannot be good fruit. It is putting a stumbling block before someone's faith to encourage them otherwise. These are serious matters whether they affect us personally or whether we are guiding other people. In Matthew 18, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this is a mistaken use of the words good fruit. So overall, after, there are other arguments that people might put forward, but that's, that's the main ones. Overall, after careful consideration, I do not find these arguments for change compelling. And therefore, I commend to you the orthodox teaching and practice, which is the current teaching of the Church of England, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, 
and the ideal place for sexual activity. And I do this with Matthew 18.6 ringing in my ears, warning me that I should not cause you to stumble by what I teach and how I guide you as a pastor. So why is the Church of England considering two alternative understandings which, um, led by the House of Bishops, which itself is severely divided on these issues? And this leads us to the final mistakenly used word, and that is unity. We heard John 17, or an extract from it. Jesus is in the upper room. He has washed feet. He has explained the coming of the Holy Spirit. He has comforted the disciples, and now he prays. Firstly, he prays for himself. And then here in the reading, he prays for the disciples and for those yet to come who will believe in him, the new disciples that will be made. And in verse 9 it says, I pray for them, I am not praying for the world. Jesus does not pray for the world here. This, what he's saying, does not relate to unbelievers or their influence. Of course, he wants them to be evangelized. Where would these new disciples come from? But not listened to or followed. Peter Tatchell is a patron of Humanists UK, and he says on their website, I am proud to be a supporter of Humanists UK. As an atheist, secularist, and humanist, I believe that reason, science, and ethics, not religious superstition, are the best way to understand the world and promote human rights and welfare, while defending persecuted religious minorities, which he does vocally, I oppose religious privilege and intolerance. Stonewall was formed as a campaigning organisation in 1989 to campaign against Section 28 of the Local Government Act that made it illegal for schools and local authorities to promote homosexuality. They have been extremely effective And if you read their website, you will find a strategy there of getting into schools and government and business um, to promote LGBTI plus rights. They are secular organisations. Oh, sorry, they are a secular organisation that has increasingly influenced the Church of England, not least through guidance to schools on issues of sexuality and identity. Peter Tatchell and Stonewall are admired, and rightly so, for they have been very successful at what they do. And indeed, they partner with organisations such as Inclusive Church, who seek to change the teaching of the Church of England. But they are of the world. This is a contravention of Jesus' prayer. And verse 10 to 11, Jesus goes on to recognize the disciples will remain in the world. And he says that the disciples glorify him, but they need to be protected in the world, protected by the powerful name of Jesus. And the purpose of that is so that they may be one as we are one. That unity is the same as the unity of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
This is the unity of which Jesus speaks. Unified as the Holy Trinity are unified. John Stott spoke about this in 1970. Jesus is praying that the church down the centuries might believe the same truths, obey the same teaching, and look forward to the same hope as the apostolic church, that is the early church. Luke tells us that the early converts devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. This is the unity for which Jesus prayed. Unity in the truth which was taught by the apostles and passed down. How different from the commonly mispreached message we hear to lay differences aside because Jesus prayed for unity. In verses 13 to 14, Jesus goes on in his prayer. I say these things so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The disciples should know joy, even though the world will hate them. Will hate them for God's word. Jesus prays, protect them from the evil one. The other names, of course, are the prince of this world, the prince of lies, or the deceiver. And he goes on by saying, sanctify them by the the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 17 to 18. Jesus prays that the, the disciples are sanctified by the truth and sent out into the world. Unity in truth. So we come full circle to where we started. In Titus, Paul was telling Titus and the Cretan church that they needed to have sound doctrine. They needed to hold on to the truth. And now here we are again with Jesus praying just before he dies on the cross for unity in truth, sanctified by God's word, sent out into the world with a different message, with good news of salvation, the good news of God's love, and a different way to live. Countercultural, not worldly. And then in verse 20 to 23, the prayer turns to Jesus praying missionally. He prays for those who do not yet believe that not only in that generation, but every generation to come. Here Jesus was praying for me when I came to Christ. For those yet to believe, those new disciples throughout the generations, those who will hear good news from those who are sanctified by the truth, the ones he was praying over at that time, the apostles. They should also become part of this one body, And this is a beacon to the world about Jesus that he may be glorified in the church, not the world, but Jesus and God's word. And the world will know of God's love for the saved and maybe want to be among them on these same counter-cultural terms. Unity is in truth. To be of the same mind not holding together two opposing understandings. Both Paul and Peter emphasize exactly the same point. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. There is one answer, and the church needs to come to that one answer. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. They are not opposed to one another. So what now? Well, I commend these conclusions to all of us. If you are as yet unconvinced, please research more. Come and ask me. Let's have a coffee. Let's read over the scriptures and pray together. If there's demand, we will have workshops or Q&As, question and answer, about these issues. There are divisions in the church, and we will be asked at some point to make our view known. And those views must be held on theological grounds, not secular worldly ones. We've seen that throughout today. Now this is an evangelical church. If you do not currently label yourself that way, if you doubt the authority of Scripture, we love you. We want to remain in fellowship with you. But be in no doubt that the teaching will not change without further divine intervention by which we are convicted by the Holy Spirit of a different conclusion. One of the the discussions that came up on the course that we ran was, I'd like to hear a spirit-filled Christian say that things should change. If this is what God's will is, then the Spirit would convict not to change. Now, if this makes anyone uncomfortable, maybe ask why is that? We all need to inquire of the Spirit of these things. That unity of mind in the truth will only come by grace. We need to be convicted of these things, but all of them. We need to live graciously towards all. Repent of hatred or phobia in its truest sense, not the way it's often used. But also seek to guide and support others in the truth of the gospel. God loves us. Jesus died for us. God is making all things new. But in the meantime, we are called to obedience to his word and in things to do with sexuality, That means one man, one woman, for life in marriage. All else, whomever we are, is temptation, which if yielded to is sin. And we should repent of sin. The choice is ours, all of us. Choose wisely.